Hello, I'm John Gill, and welcome to this month's edition of uh, Fraud Talk. I'm Vice President of Education for the ACFE. Uh, I'll do a Fraud Talk every once in a while and really enjoy it. And so today, my guest is Lisa Lawler. And so Lisa uh, is going to tell you her story in a second, but it's a little bit different from anything that we've ever done before because uh, Lisa is not a white-collar criminal, but she has certainly been the victim of a white-collar fraud, and she will explain that in just a second. But how this occurred was that her husband was the white-collar criminal, and she got caught up uh, in that. And so, Lisa, give me a little bit about your story, and and then we'll start talking about, you know, what... um, how is this important to fraud examiners? I think there's several really important points for things that fraud examiners need to know about. Uh, so you have your suspect and you track them through this case, but then how does it affect people who are involved with this? So give me your short rendition of what your story is. Well, John, I want to thank you for having me here with the ACFE. It's really important what you do, what you guys do. You've got a big job. Um, I am the founder director of the White Collar Wives Project. We began about four years ago. Uh, I started blogging in 2013, a few years after my husband embezzled and was prosecuted for a $2.6 million embezzlement from a prominent teaching hospital where he was an administrator. So that was a, a shock for me, for everyone. And what people don't understand is there are repercussions to the family. We talk about white-collar crime being a victimless crime because mostly it's in the corporate setting, but not always. But there are other victims that the public doesn't consider, and that is the family members of the perp. Uh, There are repercussions that one might not think about, aside from the fact that how didn't she know that that was happening? We'll get into that a little bit later. But there are tax implications. There is civil asset seizure and forfeiture that too often comes into play. And the innocent spouses are helpless to confront that or to mitigate that. You know, civil asset seizure and forfeiture came along as a means through mostly, you know, mob street crimes, uh, drug-related crimes, and it transferred over to white-collar crimes somewhere along the way. And so those repercussions are very difficult. Oftentimes, women have to hire their own attorneys into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And when your bank accounts are frozen, that becomes very difficult to find representation. So I began blogging about all of these things, and then I began to hear from women. And I began a support group, a private online support group, because mostly these women come in shamed and afraid and not understanding what's happened in their lives. You know, they're dealing with their children. They're also dealing with trying to wrap their heads around the fact that their husband is a criminal. You know, the man that was living, sleeping, eating, drinking right next to them, father of their children, is a common criminal. So as I heard from these women uh, and heard their stories, they become, well, actually, the picture becomes clearer as to the fact that I got up easy compared to what some of these women have been through. So our support group started with just a handful of women, and now we're nearing a hundred members across the globe. It, it it's just incredible to to think that you. I mean, people always say, "Well, how could you not know?" And I see that all all the time, and in so many of the the cases that, that I've uh, met with people about, and and so they're always like, "Well, you know, the spouse." 
claims to be innocent, but how could they not know what was going on? So tell me, you know, your, how do you deal with that when people start asking you those questions? You know, it's one of the lead things that I talk about when I meet women. Um, they feel the guilt by association. How can you not? It's somehow we feel responsible for our husbands, and we're, and we're not responsible for them. But in terms of how could she not know, how could we not know, you know, every situation is different, but we're talking about master manipulators. We're talking about how could his employer not know? How could, you know, how could a wife not know? For the most part, these funds are hidden away, and they're either brought into to being slowly, and they're often explained away as a new client or some kind of other windfall. In my case, my husband had opened up a separate bank account because he had other plans for his funds uh, that didn't include me. So no, I, I had no idea. Uh, but the stories about each case are fascinating because it's how they hide this money, when they bring it in, how they choose to tell their wives where it came from. And often on tax forms, you know, joint tax forms, the wives uh, are, are not made aware there either, if they even bother to look at what they're signing. Unfortunately, a lot of women don't. Um, a lot of spouses don't. They trust their husband implicitly, and they say, sign here, and you do, because those funds are omitted from their tax uh, returns as income. Well, and that's consistent with, um, with the cases that I see. I'm not aware of any of the ones that, the, that I've personally interviewed where the, the spouse knew anything that was going on. And, and, this is, and I've had both female and male, and it's worked the same way. If it was a female fraudster, it's like they were spending and hiding money. But they always had explanations. If a little, there was some extra money, there was always an explanation about where it came from. But, at one was gambling, some of it was like bonuses and things like that. But they were very careful to hide what they had from the other spouse so that there weren't a lot of questions uh, being asked. Exactly. We do have a lot of women in the group whose husbands had gambling problems or drug addiction problems. And, you know, these guys, these masters, want to be masters of the universe. They want their wives and families to see them as, you know, great breadwinners, great earners, and and they don't want to criminalize their family members either, of course. Now, in your particular situation, you'd been married for how many years? At that point, when I first heard about the investigation, uh, we had been married for 24 years. 24 years. And it had been happy at one point, but at this point it, it wasn't, and you all were, were kind of growing apart, my understanding. But then, as you were looking at the relationship and thinking about, well, should I stick this out or just make a break? Then, then a bombshell fell on you. Explain what happened there. Well, Joan, I had a couple of bombshells fall on me. Uh, my husband was uh, having an affair, what a cliche, with a former friend of mine. And so that was the first bombshell. So we separated. You know, I was going to wait for him to, to, ha to, to be finished with that and come home. Uh, but that didn't happen, so we separated. And about a month later, I found out that he was under investigation for embezzlement. So yeah, it was in short order. You know, it was kind of a one-two knockout <laughs> blow. Uh, so everything just kind of tumbled down in that moment. So yeah, I was dealing with a lot uh, in our family life during that time. So I think there was a lot of disbelief, but at the same time, it, it made things clear. You know, as, as crazy as that sounds, things began to fall into place and become clearer. He was a, a wreck, as I'm sure uh, anyone who would 
commit such an egregious crime, you're not going to be that light, you know, person that you once were. There was a lot of pressure. I had seen him begin to crumble beyond the pale of, of having an affair. There was a lot of pressure, and his his demeanor was that of someone under immense, extraordinary pressure. And so that became clear to me that he had been hiding this huge secret. And I think he felt some relief uh, when it when the jig was finally up. So you had a little bit of relief knowing why he had changed and how different things were, and then you were in the process of getting a divorce, and then you had a third bombshell hit when you got a notice from the Internal Revenue Service. I did. I did. What did they want? They wanted some money from me. <laughs> you know, when we've talked about this, John, most people don't understand that when you sign a joint tax return, you're on the hook for whatever is on or isn't on that tax form. And so, yeah, I got a, I got a really very large bill after my husband was sentenced, and I, I was flabbergasted. So I called the number on the form, called the agent on the form, and said, you know, I, I don't owe you this money. And they said, well, you, actually, you do. And they went on to explain to me why and how the law works, how the tax laws work. And sure enough, I owed them the money that, 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 that was omitted on the tax return. You know, taxes on illicit funds are legitimate funds, not in the eyes of the law, but in the eyes of the IRS. If it's been in your care, custody, or control for over 30 seconds or maybe even one second, it's yours. It belongs to you. And as we, you know, go through the marital laws, you're, you're, it's joint ownership. You know, it's 50-50. Debt is 50-50. It was the same if he had ran up credit card bills for $2 million. I would be on the hook for half of that debt. That is definitely something that, that a lot of people I don't think understand. Uh, fraud examiners, and that's one of the things that we teach, is that when you're doing a, a fraud case, you do need to look at the Internal Revenue Service and, and possibly report it to them because you are exactly right. If you earn money, whether legitimately or illegitimately, taxes are still owed on it. And so we go down that route, but I don't think, we, um, at least I haven't really stopped to consider, well, what happens if it's a joint tax return? And you're absolutely right. As, as a lawyer, I can assure you that, yes, if, if you sign a joint tax return, then you are, are jointly liable on uh, everything. So it's one thing to say, I didn't know, but that's not the, the, the way the Internal Revenue Service looks at it. There's a presumption that you did and that uh, you owe those taxes, and now the burden then falls on to you to prove that you didn't know anything and that you're what the, the law terms an innocent spouse. You know, it's funny. My first reply was, you know, I don't owe you this money. How can I report income that wasn't reported to me? You know, it didn't appear on the tax return. It was omitted. And it, it, it just doesn't matter. That's rhetoric to them. It just doesn't matter. They found out about it through the original one of the newspaper articles. Isn't that fascinating? Yes. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize they yeah. did that. But actually, <laughs> they looked at the newspaper and yeah. thought, hey, there yep. may be some taxes uh -huh. owed mm -hmm. on this money that he embezzled. So Here's some low-hanging fruit. Yes, absolutely. So you, you did have to hire an attorney. And you, or did you hire an attorney for I the— I did not because, okay. again— Back then, I didn't know what I didn't know. I handled it myself. 
Uh, it was six months of paperwork, talking to agents, uh, and I did, I was granted innocent spouse status. There was nothing leading me, them to, to think that I, I did have anything. There was no forensics. There was no accounting forensics there. Uh, just as forensics lead to a perp's crime and verification of a perp's crime, there's no paper trail that can verify an innocent spouse's innocence other than circumstantial. So through the circumstance, they understood and, and through them reading, I guess, through court records or whatever, they understood that it didn't have anything to do with it. But I don't recommend doing that. I do recommend hiring a, a good tax attorney. So that was just me going through that kind of in a shock and awe way. Never occurred to me to hire an attorney. So you got a bill from the Internal Revenue Service that you had to fight, but then also because some of the assets were bought with these stolen funds, my understanding is they came... Uh, after them through civil forfeiture. Is that correct? Or, or, you know, that's the usual. Well, I don't want to say usual. Here's the problem. You know, every case is adjudicated differently depending on the jurisdiction. So there's no uniformity, which becomes very difficult. I had already filed for divorce by the time, soon after the investigation, you know, we were already done. Separated. We were already separated. And I saw this coming and not having any information about what this meant for me as a spouse, had no idea, but, but somehow I knew to pull myself away from the situation. One, I, emotionally, I didn't want to get involved in it. And two, financially, I had no idea what was coming down or what could come down, but it just seemed prudent to me. Now is the time. Remove yourself from this. Um, get your assets divided and, and, and go on. So that's what I did. But now that I've seen some of these cases come across my own desk where the women wait, they want to stand by their man. They want it, they want it, you know, for better or for worse, here we go. And all too often we see them being cleaned out of their assets. So, you know, in many cases these assets are jointly owned. They can't be separated. And some jurisdictions do validate and honor that 50-50 property. It becomes very difficult. So this is kind of an area of the law that, that I'm becoming interested in pursuing kind of the minutiae and the, and the verbiage in there and also the philosophy of what that means in the law of, of separating assets and 50-50 and can you sue your husband? So that's something interesting that you can sue your husband for battering. Why can't you sue him for breach of contract, marital contract? So in this training I'm setting up for attorneys, that's something that I'm just beginning now to explore because there has to be some protection for innocent spouses because if you do stay with your husband and stand by and go through this long, arduous process of, of having your assets seized, once they're gone, once they're seized, they're gone. You know, they're either gone through substitute asset seizure and forfeiture, subsequent asset seizure and forfeiture, punitively, at the end of the road, the judge can, can assess that punitively, but you don't see it again. It's gone. So the trick is here to, to get your fair share of assets removed out of this situation as soon as possible so that you don't have to deal with that piece of this. I do know of a case, a couple of cases actually, and one is going through the appellate court again where a woman divorced her husband and her sh his share of her 401k that she'd worked for 30 years to attain uh, was taken by the feds through the forfeiture. And, and that's 50, you know, the judge gave him his share of property and that was turned over to, uh, for restitution. 
But then they came through and took hers. They wiped out her 401k after a sitting judge had allocated her own fair share of her 401k. The feds came in and sued her for her half. And she appealed it and lost. And now she's appealing it again. She's taking it to a higher court and appealing again. So this is going to be interesting. This will set a precedent, unfortunately, and we don't want it to go there. Well, it has a lot of uh, repercussions that I don't think people think about when this starts. And I've interviewed uh, a lot of people after the fact that had served time in prison. And, and one thing that I hear uniformly over and over and over is the regret that they have over how this affected their family. And I don't, and, and none of them said that, you know, when, when I was in the throes of this and I thought about stealing from the company initially I, I you know had some kind of financial problem or I really wanted some more money and I was greedy and I stole this and they all said they thought about themselves a little bit that well, what if they get caught they might well they might go to jail but they you know they might get off on probation or might be able to pay it back or they might not get caught at all none of them that I talked to stopped to think well Okay, so if I follow through on this and I steal all this money, how is this going to affect my wife and my kids and my family and my parents and, and everything else? They just really never went down that road. And so I think this is interesting. As much as I have studied white-collar crime over the years, I've really never dealt into the details of how this affects the, especially spouses. You're right. It's, uh, we were talking earlier, it is a partnership. It's almost like a, exactly. it is a legal partnership sure in many is. ways. Yeah, first and foremost, it's a legal partnership. And so if your spouse is doing something illegal and funds are flowing and, and, and you're getting the benefit of them, now you, are, you have a serious problem. And if that came in, you're signing a joint tax return and all this happens. So well, as fraud examiners, I think one of the things – that we can use this for is when we're doing training. And I'm a, a huge proponent of fraud awareness training because I, I really think it's important to keep this in the forefront of people when you're doing the, the anti-fraud training to say, hey, if you've ever been tempted, don't do it. You have got to think through the consequences of it. We have all these policies and procedures in place. We are looking for this we're going to catch you, and if we do, we're going to prosecute you to the full extent of the law. So not only are you going to lose your job, your livelihood, you might go to jail, but you've got to stop and think of, well, so you may not care if you go to jail, and you may not care if you lose your job, but do you care about what happens to your family and to your kids and to everyone else that's involved with this? And so I, I don't think that they ever really think about that and about how serious it can be for the innocent spouse that has absolutely no involvement with this, but now their, their lives have been totally upended. That's interesting. One of the first two questions I had, and probably never be answered, well, it kind of was answered by him. I said, you know, did you consider us and go ahead and do this anyway, or did you never consider us at all? So either way, it was really, it was a lose-lose. Um, his answer was that I, I didn't think beyond myself. I, I, I wasn't thinking of anyone else. I mean, he came clean. He was very honest and said, I just 
didn't think of it. And so that's kind of what we find across the board with these guys. One, they know that there's a chance they may be caught, but they don't think about the consequences beyond themselves. And you know, as we talk about compliance and deterrence and risk management, those kinds of things, we want to start talking about, you know, aside from regulations, you know, if you're doing work here in the United States, you need to know the regulations of every state that you're doing work in, business in. And same, you know, the FCPA, they, they're very big on let's make sure we all know the regulations overseas, whatever locale you're doing your, your business in. So you have to know, there's so much to know. There's, you know, as a sales force or, or whoever is doing business outside your own state, it's hard enough to know the regulations in your own state. I used to be in the insurance business, and you know, the state regulations will, will bog you down greatly. But now if you're in a position where you're doing business globally, it becomes really daunting. So not only do you have to, compliance officers have to make sure their workers understand regulations in their jurisdictions, they also need to know about their own inner jurisdiction and what goes on inside of these people. You know, I always say that, that for hiring managers, you know, they only want to hire the best people that will understand regulations and absorb them and perform in the manner they should. But these guys are so charming and smart and gregarious. And I always say, you know, when you're looking at kind of doing the profiling of your new hires, they may look great on paper. But usually, it's your best people that are stealing from you. So it, compliance officers have a huge job. You know, they can't read minds. They can only go on the kind of the nexus of what's, what's gone before them. Here's the profile of the good worker. You know, let, let's hire those people. In this day of social media, you, you know, Managers can go in and, and check people's social media out. What kind of person are they? They're right. Well, these people look great on, peop on paper. They're community people. They're little league coaches. They, um, they give to, to, um, to charities across the board. They look great on paper. But these are the people that are behind the scenes behaving badly. So how can you know? How could, how could you not know? <laughs> Say that to a compliance officer. You know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of far-reaching components to this, and there's no easy answer. That's why I believe that if you start with the family, I'm very big. Part of my platform is talking to uh, corporations about the intersection of family and corporation. Because as I say, it doesn't get any more corporate than the family. You know, there's a hierarchy, there's a chain of command, and there are trust and obligations. Uh, obligation issues. So marrying those two together, we tend to, as human beings, compartmentalize our existence, our day-to-day -day doings. And when we start to compartmentalize things and leave one piece out of another, this is where we have a problem. So I think the family plays a very important role in our working lives, and we need to remember that. No, I think that's a good point, and uh, at least I believe in the holistic approach to fraud and, and fraud detection and prevention, which is you, you've got to, to look at, you know, you drop the pebble in the lake and the ripple effects just, they just keep going and going and going and you really do have to understand, you know, not only within the organization, it creates a lot of rift. If people are, you know, we trusted this person and they feel violated and you know, I, I didn't think that could happen here, and so you have all of those problems, but at the same time, you have to think about, well, that same pebble is creating those waves in their home life, and another way I think this is useful for fraud examiners to understand is when you are trying to do an admission-seeking interview, 
And so we have cases where we're pretty sure this is the person, and we're sitting down, and we're doing the interview, and you're, you're doing everything you can to try and convince them, like, now's your chance to come clean. You can clam up, and you can not say anything, and that's fine. We'll, we'll deal with it. But now is, if, you, if you're going to do the right thing, now's the time. Here's your chance. Here's your chance to lay this all out and, uh, and help us with this. And I think one of the tools that fraud examiners should have in their tool bag is, to un- is, is the family card, which is you may think you're tough and you can stick this out, but have you thought about what's going to happen to your family? Yeah. And you, you stole this money. If you're married, did you file a joint tax return? If so, your spouse is now legally liable for taxes on this money. Have you thought about that and how this is going to affect her? If you, you bought joint assets with the funds that you stole from our organization, now that's uh, subject to seizure. They may come after her for part of this debt. And so now's the time to think about how your decision right now is going to affect not only your life, but everybody that is in your family. So now is the time to make the right decision. Yeah, that's great leverage for you guys, for anyone that's trying to gain a confession or coming clean, uh, using the family members as leverage, you know, get it done now. Let her know what's coming. Let her know, you know, if you're going to go through this together, she needs to be privy to what's going on. A lot of women, the first inkling they have of, of any wrongdoing is when, you know, the feds knock at your door at 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning. That seems to be the bewitching hour when they like to go in. Uh, and so that's the first, the first inkling they have. Um, and oftentimes, yes, there is an opportunity to plea, most times, and you just need to get it done. My husband asked several times if he could just come in and, and come clean. And they had rebuffed him and said, no, we're not ready yet. No, no, no. The grand jury had been done for months and months after two years of grand jury. They, they went for a very long time. There were other players involved, it turned out. And he wanted to come clean, and they just wouldn't allow it. And his attorney kept saying, no, you'll get a summons. When they're ready, we'll, we'll get a summons. We'll appear for your arraignment. And that didn't happen. They, they came and arrested him, which just was ridiculous because he had, he had asked to turn himself in. Uh, but I think it is important for, for you guys, for um, anyone that's trying to get a confession, to, to play that family card. You know, it's not something that, that even the perps understand is going to happen. Here's, here's how this is going to go down for your wife or your husband. Uh, they're in this too. So if you want to make it easier on your loved ones, as you said, John, let's just get it done. Uh, I do know someone who is in the grips of the FBI right now. They want him to be a cooperator. And he's not really sure what that means. You know, what are the repercussions for my family? He is thinking that in terms of his family and this cooperating because it could go on for years. Um, and, and wearing a wire and all of that. There's so many components to white-collar crime and the consequences, and you just never know how it's going to go. Well, and the sad thing about it is, is there are so many victims. People, you're right, I yeah. hear a lot of times, well, it's a big company and they can afford it and it's a victimless crime, but they're not, you're not thinking about uh, this uh, very logically because I think there's there are always a lot of uh, victims involved with white-collar crime. A lot of victims, I think, in the workplace, people that were dealing with these individuals and a breach of trust and 
uh, in addition to monetary losses, but then I think it's also good for fraud examiners to stop every once in a while and consider the the victims, the innocent victims at the family level, uh, children, spouses, parents that are affected by this uh, emotionally and financially. It's, it's something we all should should keep in mind. And let me give people or the if they're interested in more information about this, the uh, White Collar. The White Collar Wives Project. It is uh, the whitecollarwivesproject.org. And okay. you can find my blogs there. You can find testimonials from other women. You can find my media package there. Um, we are gaining a lot of traction finally after many years. I think because you can't go a day without opening a newspaper or turning on the, uh, the evening news without hearing about somebody who's done something terribly wrong financially or otherwise uh, but but I also recently heard John that this that white collar crime may be making you know a very large appearance in this next election next presidential election I think people are really tired of it and it is preventable and so that's where we need to keep you know keep our uh, keep our eye on it and keep doing what we can to prevent it and trying to keep uh, the message out there and, and being proactive in organizations with this training and I think mentioning yeah. the, the consequences of the family is a good way to, to try and bring awareness to prevent people from uh, if you don't care about yourself it, it hopefully you care about your spouse and your family and wouldn't want to put them through something like this. Yeah I just wanted to say I think in the corporate setting I don't think people want to hear about the family. Family doesn't belong in the corporate setting you know the little woman and the kiddies we don't need to talk about them well you do need to talk about them they do belong in the corporate setting. We're all in this together. That's right. All right. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for your time, and uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll look for you on our next edition of Fraud Talk. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, John.